3: everybody and welcome to Outward, Slate's show about everything lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender and queer. I am Jules Gil-Peterson and this is my brain uh, after listening to Kali Minogue's tension 30 times in a row. So mm. if I just sputter out into <laughs> nonsensical robot interludes during this episode, you'll know why.
1: Uh, I'm Brian Lauder. Uh, I'm an editor at Slate. And am I a bad gay? Because I haven't listened to that yet. I feel like I,
3: yeah. I feel like bad. I'm behind.
1: Yeah. Oh my god. Okay, I will actually let's pause the recording and I'll go.
3: <laughs> the straight
0: numbers like, are like... growing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm Christina Cotarucci, a senior writer at Slate. And I'm fresh back from Philly where some of our Slate colleagues and I went to the NLGJA conference, or as June Thomas pronounces it négligé. Woo.
3: Well, I just have to ask this question. Do you do you feel what I feel? The the crisp rustle of autumn leaves. That Ooh. that closet full of chunky sweaters that's calling your name. Okay, well, let's be real. Maybe you're feeling it or maybe you don't. Thanks to climate change, there is literally a hurricane off the coast of New England right now <laughs> where I'm recording. But the calendar says it's September and if you're ready to warm up your muscles as the temperatures dip or get your (laughs) apartment all cozy for cuffing season that's on its way, we've got you covered. First, we're going to be talking to sports journalist Katie Barnes about their new book, Fair Play, How Sports Shape the Gender Debates. Which tells us the remarkable story of how sports have actually been gendered way before today's anti trans panics. Also, introduces us to a bunch of amazing queer and trans athletes, and just might help you figure out why your chronically online uncle is apparently so worried about the integrity of women's swimming all of a sudden. Ooh. Uh, (laughs) He's always been that way. (laughs) He's always been that way though. Yeah. Then we're gonna be joined by the one, the only Mercury Stardust writer and TikToker Extraordinaire. She's known as the trans handy ma'am for her DIY home repair videos. And Mercury has a new book out as well. It's called Safe and Sound, A Renter-Friendly Guide to Home Repair. That blends some pretty stunning illustrations, some very helpful emotional processing breaks mm-hmm. uh, with how-to guides for making your apartment into a sanctuary when your LLC shell company landlord sure as hell doesn't reply to your maintenance requests. Okay. So sadly, I'm actually, you know, live on air going to lose my femme privilege, uh, which has been refusing how to learn to use a cordless drill for years, but uh. it is a sacrifice I'm willing to make for you, my beloved listeners. So stick around to see how that goes down. As always, we'll have some pumpkin spice-laced prides and provocations, as well as our monthly updates to the gay agenda. Um, but first, Christina, do we have a, a thwatt or maybe even a, a queer-wee?
0: Oh, do we? <laughs> this one? It's- Probably our best month ever. The thoughts came out of hiding. The mm-hmm. queries were flying. Um, <laughs> apparently, a lot of you have read Red, White, mm. and Royal Blue. Cool. Yes. And like us, I'm just going to start with what everyone agrees with us about <laughs> that the movie sucked. So thank you everyone for saying we were right. But there was a through line in a lot of the emails we got and a few voice memos as well, which was that the book was so much better. Mm -hmm. None of us had actually read the book. And now I kind of wish that we had forced one of us to do that because it sounds fantastic based on all the reviews we've gotten in our emails, but the widely shared consensus seems to be that a lot of our problems with the film did not exist in the book. First, I wanna play a memo we got from Elizabeth. Subject line, the book was better in every way. Here they are.
4: First of all, I agree with many of your takes on the movie. It was bad and weird. And two, the book was actually so, so, so much better. It has politics that are pretty okay. It's grounded in gay history. Their emails have quotes from gay history and all their sign-offs to each other. It's adorable and grounds it in actual context. The sense of Alex's social class makes more sense and has like actual grounding in the story. There's no hot gay reporter outing Alex, but rather a political opponent of his mom. Alex not understanding he's bi makes a lot more sense. And like, (laughs) I guess what I mean is the movie is bad on its own terms, but also it's a truly terrible adaptation in ways that offend me both as a fan of books and movies and the art of adaptation, and also as a bisexual trans person. His Secret Service person is trans, and openly so in the book, and they cast a trans actress to play her in the movie, but then never mention that she's trans.
0: So glad to hear the book was that much better. And here's Peter, who agrees with me on another topic.
5: Hi, Outward folks. I really enjoyed your discussion of Red, White, and Royal Blue. I agreed with a lot of what you said, but especially with Christina, who pointed out that the movie missed a unique opportunity to better explore the bi experience of self-discovery. As a bi man, I really identified with that part of the book, which I thought was handled very well. In the book, at one point, Alex remembers as a teenager thinking that he must not be gay, since he didn't think about a guy once when he was kissing a girl. I know I probably had that exact same thought as a young man. That sort of monosexism was probably the biggest barrier to me figuring out my identity. The line, straight people probably don't spend this much time convincing themselves that they're straight, was also one from the book that I missed in the movie. On another note, I think it is particularly telling that even though the Alex character is actually rather annoying, I still found myself wanting to spend time with him, probably since I feel somewhat starved for bi-male representation in media. However, I guess that might be changing if I think about amazing shows like Heartstopper. But I still hope for more and better representation in the future.
0: Thank you to everyone who agreed with us. (laughs) And um, also, thank you for the necessary pushback we got from some people that uh, perhaps Mm. we should have emphasized more that this was probably Amazon's fault and that the queer writer actually did a phenomenal job. Um, Thank you, everyone, for calling us in on that.
1: Yeah, and that the playwright behind the the inheritance and adapted this maybe did a bad job. Yeah. Yeah. Let's
0: not let that person off the hook either. If you want to hear your voice on the next Outward, come up with a fun little hot take about this episode. Email us at any time at, at com. Yes, we do read your emails and we love to hear from you.
1: All right. With that, it is time for our usual round of prides and provocations. Jules, I'm curious to hear how you're feeling this autumnal September.
3: I'm having a little crosswired wired scenario where uh, something what I'm supposed to feel proud of is provoking me. Ooh, um, how queer of you. I know I'm really, really revolutionary here, but okay. And in, in, in all seriousness, um, <laughs> this, the California state assembly voted um, to pass a resolution that if it makes its way through the state legislature would declare August to be transgender history month in California. And, huh. you know, I just sort of saw this on my social media diet as kind of like, Hey, hashtag good news. And here's my provocation. Um, I don't know. Don't we kind of have enough months? <laughs> like, no- <laughs> Look, I feel like I have the credibility to say this because I am literally a transgender historian. Here's the thing. You know, June has become a very long month. It stretches one and one. Um, And in some places, actually, you know, I'm from Canada, where I grew up, Pride is actually in August. So sometimes it does feel like Pride just never ends. But also October is LGBT history month. Like, trust me, I know, because I'm giving like 300 lectures in October. That's fine. I just sort of felt like, do we need a separate trans history month? I don't know. You know, I'm just provoked. I'm not I'm not really coming out against it by any means. But it also has that kind of feeling, you know, that's like, Cool, cool, the trans people are fleeing certain states and be forcibly detransitioned and you'd be attacked and like right. living in fear. And like, congratulations on your history month. As we know, every time a history month is designated in America, it solves all the struggles and oppression that minority groups experience. So I don't know, take this for what it's worth, but I just feel a little like, huh? I mean, you know, the California state legislature has done a lot of stuff that's actually truly materially pro trans so I'm not really mad at them. Just kind of like, wait, who asked for this? Maybe it was at the meeting of trans historians I forgot to attend, so (laughs) (laughs) please feel free to cancel me for this reaction.
1: Christina, what do you have?
0: So there's a new movie out called Bottoms. Maybe you've seen it. It came out in theaters last month. Now it's streaming. It's about these high school lesbian losers who start a fight club to impress their cheerleader crushes. I thought the movie was fine. I talked about it on Slate's Culture Gab Fest. But that's not my provocation. My provocation was an interview that the two stars, Iowa Debery and Rachel Sennett, uh, and the co-writer and director, Emma Seligman, Gave to New York Magazine. It was a big cover story titled Power Bottoms, written by Rachel Handler. And this kind of comes back to a little bit of a perennial provocation of mine that's a little controversial, which is just the way people talk about their queerness. Mm. So Io has previously said that she's queer. Occasionally she'll slip it into comments she makes. But in this piece, she proactively brings it up with. Handler in a very weird and kind of scoldy way. She's talking to the, her co-star and the director now. She goes, I don't know how many interviews you guys have done for this, but there's this thing that's been happening where people are like, and give me your identity. It's so boring to me. You can already assume so much when you look at me. I'm like, why do you care? And then Emma Seligman, who, has, who is openly queer, also says, mocking journalists. So excited to talk to you. So are you gay? And then Adebary says later when Handler follows up to be like, okay, like, I just want to make sure I'm identifying you correctly in the piece. Like, how do you identify? Adebary says of sort of the desire of people to know if the actors playing queer people are actually queer in real life, bro, this is not how we do progress. We are being worse than whatever you think the other side is. If you think this is a way to liberate people, it's not. So I have a couple things to say about this. Number one, it's actually not weird to want to know that information. No. Uh, first of all, as Carol Hanisch tells us, the personal is political. And as Harvey Milk tells us, coming out is the most political thing you can do. Ooh,
3: Christina has citations.
0: <laughs> I- I'm glad. That I impressed you, Jules. That's <laughs> my ultimate goal with everything I do on this show. <laughs> <laughs> Number two... These people are specifically marketing their film to queer women. Right. In fact, earlier in that same New York Magazine piece, Emma Seligman says the way they sold it to studios was by saying, you know, there's all these people who are fans of King Princess and Muna and Hailey Kiyoko. There's these young queer women who are going to just rush to the theaters to see this. You know why people love? King Princess and Muna and Hailey Kiyoko, why queer women love them? Because they're hot and we know that they are gay. And that's why we love them. You want the same attention and the same loyalty from that fan base, but you scold us for wanting to know if you're gay. Like that's literally the entire point. Number three, we're not worse than the other side for wanting to celebrate you for being queer. The other side literally wants us marginalized, criminalized, and dead, so. Stop both sides in this. It's offensive to me. It kind of screams, like, low-key, self-hating gay. And I'm also sick of being scolded as a journalist for, like, wanting to say nice things about gay people.
1: Yeah, that's, like, that's super, super annoying. And definitely it feels like, I don't know, some kind of... I feel like you hear a lot of that from, like, Actors and sort of LA, I, I feel like there's like a, like a bubble yeah. there, there that like labels. I don't that I've never yeah exactly that that I've like always found just super annoying and and disconnected from like reality Certain, certainly claiming that the other side
3: <laughs> that we're yeah,
0: worse than, worse than, the, worse other than side. the other side like have you been paying attention to what the other side is doing Thanks a lot, bro, bro, <laughs> Brian. Um, Brian. I hope you're proud this month.
1: <laughs> I am proud. <laughs> oh, and I'm, I'm actually just proud of myself. I have a, a silly little pride, but I wanted to share it. So, the, so New York has been experiencing a string of thunderstorms of late, and I consider myself a th- thunderstorm queen. I love the, <laughs> the vibe of a thunderstorm. I get very excited Aww. about the lightning and the thunder and just like, you know, how, how it gets so dark, and, and I don't know, like the energy's fun. That's so, very but,
0: southern boy of you. Yeah,
1: maybe so. Maybe so. That's true, because yeah, we, right. This is like the late summer time of that. So, anyway, during one of these uh, recently, uh, it was an early evening. A a thunderstorm rolled in, and the lightning was going. I was like, oh, this is so wonderful. I I went and uh, found a Spotify playlist of, like, film noir jazz for (laughs) for stormy nights to put on. I made, like, a, like, sort of broody cocktail. I think it was a Martinez. And, like, you know, it was really settling in for this. I was like, oh, this is going to be, like, the best, like, stormy evening. And then in, like, 20 minutes, that fucking storm cleared out of the way. (laughs) And the sun came out again because it wasn't dark yet. It wasn't dark yet, so it was, no. like, we had, you know... And you 30... had your
0: drink and everything. Yeah, we had, like, 45 more
1: minutes of stupid sunshine. And so I had, like, actual anger <laughs> at Mother Nature <laughs> for not respecting my, like, moody storm tableau that I had constructed. I was, like, hissing at the sun. <laughs> like Wait, I was I'm like... waiting
0: for the pride to come out here.
1: <laughs> so, <laughs> I'm getting there. I was <laughs> hissing at so like a vampire. I was, like, this is so rude. Like, respect, respect my aesthetic. And so what I'm saying is, I'm proud of how gay I am, because, <laughs> because I think that my aesthetic creation and sensibility should trump meteorology and time and nature itself. Oh. Um, so
3: I'm
0: proud of that too, Brian. That's really <laughs> <Thank great. you. laughs>
3: The heterosexual rumors from the top of the show are dashed. Yes, thank
1: you. Thank you, yeah. Literally shaking my fist at, at, the, no, at the sunlight.
0: that's beautiful. <laughs> that's queer code. Oh my uh, god, that's, that's so, me. like, parody of yourself, Ryan. I love it.
1: <laughs> but it happened, it was real. It was so upsetting. It was like, so, it was like, you know, 7.15, if it had waited 30 more minutes, it would have been, it would have mattered, but. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring.
3: A laundry? Ooh, a book club.
0: For our next segment, we are talking to Katie Barnes, one of the country's most accomplished journalists on the intersection of sports and gender. As a feature writer at ESPN, they've done some of my favorite reporting on LGBTQ athletes, particularly elite trans athletes. And their new book, Fair Play, How Sports Shape the Gender Debate, is just a really thorough and empathetic look at gender segregation and inclusion in sports starting all the way back with the history of Title IX, but with a particular focus on the past decade or so and the fights over whether and how trans athletes compete in sports. The book looks at the personal histories of Leah Thomas, Mac Beggs, Andrea Yearwood, and others who have borne the brunt of this persistent, coordinated campaign to keep trans people out of sports. And they also track the broader contours of the policy landscape, which is changing all the time. Katie, we are so happy to have you here. Thank you for joining us.
6: Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it.
0: So one of the reasons why I really wanted to talk to you about this book is that I think there are a lot of people out there, well-meaning people, perhaps even some listeners of this podcast, queer and trans people, who still don't know how to talk about this issue because maybe there's biology involved and even you know, advocates for trans inclusion in sports will sometimes propose different standards for different levels of sports. Uh, Why does this seem, or or why is it more complicated for people to grasp than other trans rights issues?
6: I think it's incredibly nuanced and it's really hard to discern what is high quality information versus what is misinformation. Um, And a big part of that is because I think the contours of this conversation, while they can be rooted in fact also preys on cultural assumptions about both sports and gender and how those Uh. things relate to each other. Um and so what I mean by that is that culturally, right, we think that men's sports are better sports and better Mm -hmm. athletic um exposition exhibitions as it will as you if you will, um, than women's sports, right, just to be broad about it. And When we are talking about transgender athletes, particularly transgender girls and women participating and competing in girls and women's sports, um, it really, I think, preys upon those assumptions about that we have about the relationship between gender and bodies, between sex and bodies and athletic output and athletic achievement. And that can be really hard to break down, even Uh with facts. And also because if you say, if you're talking about biology and you say, well, you know, testosterone matters in X, Y, Z ways, then folks hear, oh, so anyone assigned male at birth shouldn't be able to compete in women's sports ever. Uh And it's much more complex than that.
0: Yeah. I mean, one of the things uh, that really kind of surprised me in your book, but seems so obvious is that, you know, even if you say, okay, certain levels of testosterone, you know, the more you have, you know, it affects the way you process oxygen, maybe your muscle mass, whatever... But that isn't a one-to-one comparison to how you do in a sport. you know. That doesn't say like, oh, so you're going to automatically win this race or you're automatically going to be good at swimming or soccer or whatever. It, it feels like the right especially sort of preys on the um, confusion people have around that to act like the issue is a lot simpler than it is.
6: Yeah, I think there's a lot of oversimplification that happens um, because the topic is so complex and so you can kind of get away with Um, and oversimplifying things, because that helps people digest um, what you're trying to talk about. But it's not always reflective of the conversation that we need to be having. And I think for me, one of the things I really wanted to do with Fair Play was re-inject some nuance um, and complexity into the conversation, and also just in plain English, talk about exactly what's happening, right? And so when we're talking about sports... Right now, culturally, we're having like eight different conversations at the same time and pretending that they are, in fact, the same conversation. And that mm. and that's not what's happening legislatively. And I think it's really important to say, here's what legislation says. Here's what it does. Here is what we could be talking about at an elite level and really posing the question, is the regulation that we would impose upon elite athletes and Olympic-level athletes appropriate for school-level sports? Right And – that is a missing question. And so for me, it's less about what one side is saying about the issue and more that we're having an incredibly incomplete conversation, whether we're talking about science or we're talking about policy, um, talking about the questions of advantage. It's all been sort of framed in one specific way and is missing, I think, a lot of context, a lot of nuance, Um, and I trust people to be willing to grapple with those things as they have a more complete conversation.
3: Yeah. I mean, speaking of context, I think one of the really, I don't know, just like even for someone like me who kind of obsessively follows these things, you know, for, for work, of course, I was sort of struck, you know, especially early on in the book, you, you restore a context that I think is often missing mm. and people don't even realize is that, especially in the United States, although the US perspective has kind of been internationalized. When we talk about sports and gender, we're actually using language that is entirely locatable in the passage of Title IX in 1972, uh, and we don't even always realize we have this perspective, particularly on women's and girls, you know, relationship to sports, on what fairness looks like um, that comes out of this Title IX tradition. But amazingly, Title IX wasn't even passed uh, to have anything to do with sports in the first place. It's an education law and. Kind of just curious, like I know it's a very long and complex history, but but what maybe are like the babe things about um, Title IX that that you would want people to you know to, to think about when we're kind of approaching the conversation around gendered sports today?
6: Yeah, I think for me it's two points. Um, one is that, you know, we use Title IX as shorthand to describe why we have them in sports, right? And you know, talking about how Title IX is actually, it says nothing about sports, it's 39 words long, and, you know, is an education access law that protects all students uh, from sex-based discrimination in schools and activities. And the activities part is why it applies to the creation of women's sports, um, because prior to Title IX, there really were no girls' uh, sports at the school level but what I thought was really interesting, in, and this was something that was illuminated for me by Libby Shero, uh, who is a phenomenal academic um, historian who specializes in Title IX history at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. And one of the things that Dr. Shero talked about was how there was a conversation even then about what it would look like to create girls sports at the school level. The National Organization for Women, in, uh, specifically, was only in favor of sex separation, as long as it eventually moved into a more integrative model later. Right. And that I think is a piece of history that we don't talk about often. That is not discussed because, you know, girls and women's sports has been you know created and thought of as this category that requires protection. And to be clear, like especially when it comes to strength and power-based sports and speed-based sports, right? Like those, like our sporting apparatus and in large part, was designed to exploit traits of men, right? So girls are not as fast as boys at the high school level or on the elite level um, when you look at the times in swimming and um, and track between men and women or look at like power lifting and the discrepancy in what men are able to lift versus what women are able to lift. But a lot of that discussion from the National Organization for Women at the time in the mid-70s was about resources and it wouldn't be fair to have an integrative model right off the bat when girls weren't allowed to play sports and boys have been allowed to play sports. And I thought that was really interesting. It was less about the differences between sex and more about um, who had access and how long has that ac- has that discrepancy existed. Um, and those are still, I think, some fundamental questions that we're asking now, right? About who is able to play sports and at what ages, what kind of training do you have access to? Is there a discrepancy there between sexes? There certainly is when it comes to class, right but like we mm-hmm. have allowed for some of those discrepancies to persist and don't actually see them as being advantageous um, either between or within um, you know our sex groups.
1: Kitty, one of the things that I love that you do in the book is the sort of moments of, like, cultural anthropology, let's call it. I was thinking specifically about this part where you go into the phenomenon within softball of uh, the no bo lesbian, which is not something I'd ever heard of before. I wondered if you could just talk a little bit about what that is, explain it to our listeners, and, and sort of how it shows the way that sports uh, are gendered and in the, in the gender trouble that kind of exists within them uh, already.
6: Yeah, you know, one of the things I thought was important in terms of context for this overall conversation is the ways in which gender policing already exists, Um. and how that is already an example of queer phobia, broadly. And so I had been aware of this in softball, because it was a thing when I was growing up, I did not play softball, but I knew people who did. And I'd heard about this, and I had written about it and mentioned it previously in another story. I grew up in Indiana. So you would see softball players wearing hair bows, um, like hair ribbons, right? And they would be Mm -hmm. different colors. Teams, some teams had like their own hair ribbon kits. It was a whole thing. And so there was a thing where if you weren't wearing a bow, either you were declaring yourself to be a lesbian or you Mm -hmm. were assumed to be a lesbian, Mm -hmm. right? And I think like within our community, as queer and trans people, like we can also acknowledge that softball is you know a stereotypically lesbian sport, right? Like it's a thing culturally that we associate lesbians with softball. Right? Like there's a In fact our producer is in the
0: middle of writing a book that covers some of that. Yeah.
6: Yeah. So like there's a little bit of truth and also it's a cultural stereotype. Uh Right. And so The whole no-bo, question mark, lesbo, exclamation point, like was a thing in like the mid-2000s, early 2010s. I think it's less of a thing now. But to me, it was really emblematic of the ways in which we code gender expression in sports mm. um, and that to express in a more feminine way is communicating something about your sexual orientation, mm. whether or not it is true. Right. We also know that there are feminine queer women who play sports, like all of this is true, but for the sake of this discussion, you know, because playing sports is masculine coded uh, culturally right. right. in women's sports, there is this performance of femininity um, and a lot of times that comes from pressure and the hair bows um, and that culture that existed at that time in softball, I think was a really good example of that, though it is present in other ways in other sports.
1: Mm-hmm. One of the things that was really eye opening for me in the book was your discussion. And I think Christina maybe mentioned this word earlier, or Jules did, um, of fairness in sport and this idea of meaningful competition. And this was not as clear cut As I sort of as someone that doesn't know a lot about sports, honestly, like this this sort of surprised me the the way that you the position you take on that and the way you explain it. Can you uh, go through those terms a little bit for our listeners?
6: Yes. So I think when we think about what fairness is, right, there's this idea that there's a level playing field, and in sports, there's never a level playing field. Like somebody has an advantage, somebody has a disadvantage, especially when we're talking about elite athletics. But it's even messier when we're talking about younger kids and those who are just going through puberty. Like high school sports are very messy for a number of reasons. Everybody's all over the place physiologically, right? Mm
0: And emotionally.
6: And emotionally, (laughs) yes. So when we think about, I think a lot of times there's a, a worry about fairness, specifically in elite sports, but also as it pertains to women's sports. Um, But this idea that the result shouldn't be predetermined, that everybody has an equal chance of winning the trophy at the end, that is, I think, largely not how sports generally works. Um, There isn't like an equality of opportunity per se, like nobody, like there isn't an equal chance. Somebody is favored, somebody is an underdog. However, when we're talking about like the final race of the, you know, 200 meter butterfly, um, you know, the women's category in the Olympics, if you're one of those eight swimmers that has a chance to compete for that medal, if you get a lane, you never know what's going to happen, right? Like that result isn't predetermined, somebody could come out of nowhere and win, the favorite could choke, the favorite could dominate. But like there are, it's not a predetermined um, result. And that reflects a meaningful competition piece right and Mm -hmm. that's something that i incorporated from joanna harper who is a transgender woman and is a researcher um in this space um and she talks about meaningful competition in that when we look at what science says about the effects of testosterone suppression but when it comes to transgender women who are suppressing their testosterone after undergoing testosterone driven puberty you know we know that muscle mass shrinks but not all the way to what we would expect to see with somebody who is a cisgender woman. We know that athletic outputs decrease um, in a number of ways, but not necessarily always at the level that we would expect from cisgender women. Um, same thing with other metabolic indicators like VO2 max, um, grip strength, etc. Now, I would say, okay, grip strength is a you know it's an indicator, but That has nothing to do with soccer, right? Like, so they're not always (laughs) applicable one-to-one to every single sport, but we know this. But what we also know is that transgender women physiologically are not the same as cisgender men. And culturally, we talk about them as if they are the same. And so when thinking about meaningful competition, it's about at what level is it fair for a transgender woman to compete on an elite level with cisgender women in that the result is not predetermined. Um, and that's sort of what Joanna Harper um, asks about. And points to and says that the science does not say that, like, it's never fair. So we're in an environment where international federations and government uh, and NGBs, national governing bodies, are passing an incredibly restrictive policy um, that says that transgender women who have experienced testosterone-driven puberty at all are barred from competing in women's category forever um, and Joanna Harper's point is that when when it comes to thinking about meaningful competition that probably isn't appropriate uh, across all right. sports um, and I think it's sort of reframing how we think about what is fair while also recognizing that there are people who fundamentally vehemently disagree with Joanna Harper's perspective and think that mitigation of uh, you know, metabolic and physiological advantages uh, that are conferred upon experiencing testosterone-driven puberty, that unless those are fully negated, it's never fair. And the science would say that those are not fully negated um, most of the time, but how relevant that is for athletic performance and who gets on a podium, those are questions that we have to ask that we don't have good answers to now. And never mind the fact that as we're asking those questions from an elite policy perspective, we also know that like femur length is probably not an appropriate discussion for prepubescent athletes or for amateur athletes generally like the overwhelming majority of people who participate and compete in school level sports, K through 12, do not go on to play college. And it's not like 57%. It's like 96%. So it's a huge, huge, huge number. And I think that's just worth saying.
0: I really love that your book doesn't turn away from the personal aspect of this. You know, you write about these athletes, Like people because they are and it's very clear in your book that the people who have been targeted by you know media firestorms and right-wing vitriol have been sometimes children college students they're people who were just trying to compete in their field as children or young adults I want to give you an opportunity to talk about the human side of this too especially reading your book I was just thinking about no matter what the policies say I just can see there being like a chilling effect on trans youth deciding whether to even play sports, even in places where they're allowed to compete just because they might think like, I don't want that fuss. I don't want that scrutiny. What are you seeing and hearing from people on the ground about that?
6: Oh, I mean, people are terrified. There's no question about that. If you are a young transgender person or you are a parent of a transgender child or transgender adolescent or even just a transgender adult, right now, people are scared. Um, Our entire community is scared. Like, there's no way around that. And I think what makes this discussion really hard is that the majority of the American public has questions that they want to have answered. And so, as a journalist, I wanted to answer those questions. And I also know that when we're talking about testosterone and femur length and VO2 max and all of these things we play right into stereotypes about trans people as only worthy of focus when it comes to the medicalization of their bodies and that is naturally dehumanizing and so like these are things i grapple with all the time as a person and as a journalist and that's why i really wanted to center as much of the narrative as i could on the real experiences of people who have shouldered the weight of you know the public outcry around this topic, um, especially when we haven't heard from them. And that would include Leah Thomas, or we have seemingly forgotten, you know, who these people are as individuals in the cases of Andrea Yearwood and Mac Beggs. You know, Andrea was 14 when I first met her. And that is something, you know, I always say, because like, she's now graduating from college um, next year, and this is still tied up in court, right? Like, she hasn't run on a track competitively since February of 2020, her senior year of high school. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a lot of times when we're debating policy and should transgender athletes compete, you know, we end up dehumanizing you know, these people in our communities in the process. Um, and so I really try to one, name that that happens, and to in my own writing, try to recenter uh, those perspectives and the experiences of transgender people as people first.
0: I think you do an excellent job of that, Katie. Thank you so much for your work. And um, again, Katie Barnes, their book is out now. It's called Fair Play, How Sports Shape the Gender Debate. Katie, thank you so much for
6: your time. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it.
1: All right, I've got to kick off this segment with a shout out to my fabulous little brother who first shared with me the magic of Mercury Stardust earlier this year. Thank you, Kyle. Ever since then, I have followed Mercury's TikTok home maintenance advice on Instagram though, because I'm old. And her guidance has even helped me unclog my own bathtub uh, by myself earlier this summer when it started spewing scary black dirt or something up. And I'm not super handy, so this was like a great accomplishment. So when I learned that Mercury, who is also known as the trans handyman, had a book coming out this fall, I knew we had to have her on the show. Mercury has been a professional maintenance technician for over 15 years as well as a burlesque performer and activist and now writer. Her gentle and informative TikToks on everything from fixing leaky faucets to hanging mirrors are widely beloved and her new book, Safe and Sound, A Renter-Friendly Guide to Home Repair is already a number one New York Times bestseller. We're so pleased to have you on Outward today, Mercury. Welcome and congratulations.
2: Well, hey there. Hi, everybody. Isn't it wild? It's so wild.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it's really thrilling and I think uh, very, very well deserved. I'm going to get into your, ask about your background and all of that in a second. But first, I just wanted to tell you and our listeners that I find your work and particularly this book emotionally moving in a way that I didn't expect for, you know, work about home repair Uh, And I think it has to do with this core notion of yours that you talk about a lot and you write about, which is that there's no such thing as common sense. As an effeminate bookish kid myself, a gay, eventually gay kid, I grew up around men who were always like literally berating me for not having common sense around Mm. things like hammering nails or like cutting the grass. And I think that experience really like put a block on on learning a lot of that stuff for me for years, even though now I like enjoy fixing my room button and stuff. like there's trauma there. there's like trauma around this idea of common sense, uh, and I think a lot of queer people probably share that. So I'd love for you to just begin by talking about that idea of common sense and why you really reject it uh, in your work.:
2: Well, I think it's good to remind everybody you may not know this, but I'm very queer) <laughs> <laughs> uh, and everything really, that you are talking about, I also experienced, right? Like, yeah. even though that I am um, more than proficient at most of these tasks, right? I have not always been that way. So, uh, as I've entered this field in some facet, I have been spoken down to, mm. or often, you know, this knowledge in some ways have been gatekept in a way of like, you're yeah. not masculine enough. So, therefore, how dare you waste our time with your You this, you know? <laughs> you know? Um, and that is like a universal thing that I think a lot of queer people feel. We we enter this field in spite of the restrictions instead mm. of it. The feel itself is welcoming to um, our like, right? Mm-hmm. So... I am coming from a place of relatability because of all that, right? I myself find this stuff very difficult to learn from the resources in which are around me, either be it media or books or from my father or my brothers. Learning from them was not always an accessible route for me. And it isn't for a lot of my readers and a lot of my watchers, right? Right. So that is like right there, we have that connection point and instead of doing what a lot of us do and try to assimilate into the masses, I've rejected all that. And I said, hey, it's okay if we don't know the names of any of this. Mm -hmm. We don't know the names of uh, literally anything. (laughs) And it's okay if we are treating this from a different perspective because we have a different perspective.
1: Yeah, yeah. So maybe um, this would be a good moment to actually back up a little bit and tell us how you, found your way to this work, I, you know, I know you grew up on a farm uh, and then you were a burlesque performer. So tell us how you found your way to uh, being a maintenance technician, right? And then to, you know, to, to sharing that through TikTok.
2: You know, it, I, I always tell people that I got into this business through the back door. <laughs> but I feel like, I feel like I, that is the gayest joke that I could make in this. <laughs> But I I do feel very, um, every single career I've ever had, I've entered through um, the back door in a Mm. lot of ways. In burlesque, I got into burlesque because I was a cabaret performer who was really good at juggling. And (laughs) they were like, hey, you would be really good at um, doing boylesque. And I had no idea what boylesque was. So I was like, oh, that's great. Thank you so much. And then I promptly Googled it right afterwards. (laughs) And then I started my career in burlesque. Um, And something similar happened with maintenance. I was a traveling cabaret performer, like I was saying. And I needed a job. You know, I was down here in tropical Madison, Wisconsin for a few years at this point. Not making a whole lot of headway. And then someone was like, hey, you would be really good in maintenance. You should... Um, apply for this job, and I was like, <laughs> <you> "No, <know. laughs> anything to do with that? I did not want to be a maintenance person. I hated tools, you know. But I was really good at this. I was always naturally um, understanding of how to troubleshoot. I was always, I, I just grew up on a farm, so we had to fix things with duct tape and WD-40. That was basically mm-hmm. our option for most things. So here I am in my early 20s, not knowing what to do, and I apply for this job. And to my amazement over other people uh, that were applying for it, I got the job. And then uh, within four months, I graduated from uh, an apprentice into the actual field of maintenance. And then I started my career that lasted uh, until now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, it was really well, art of survival. I think these skills in a lot of ways mm. were developed and honed art of survival. And then, of course, I went into tech school and I started learning in that realm as well. But I watched a lot of stuff online. I never took mm. one answer as a definitive answer. And I think that's a key component to how I teach people all this stuff. Is I know multiple different answers to the same question. And I think mm. that's helped me a lot understand that there isn't a universal one route. There's 10 routes for every single one of these problems. Yeah.
0: I one thing I love about your book that really sets it apart from literally every other home maintenance guide I've read, um, which is you know a limited number. <laughs> you have these emotional resets mm-hmm. in your book yeah. where you remind people, you know, like prioritize hanging things on the wall when you move into a place. It makes it feel like home or even just the tone you take, you know, mold can be frustrating. It can come back. It doesn't mean you did anything wrong or, um, you know, I'm going to just ask you to really dig into that lint trap. Like I just feel so <laughs> lovingly like mm-hmm. dommed or maybe momed by this. Mm-hmm. Like I mm-hmm. just want to do exactly what you say and make you proud of me. It's so like personal and caring
4: yeah.
0: and, I I want to know like how is that just a natural part of your personality or is that something you specifically channel because you feel like people need it?
2: I feel like you kind of brought it up, so I'm just gonna lean into it. I am a Dom, right? And <laughs> oh, I knew it. I knew it's I it. That. Very, it's very interesting you bring it up because I think there's a lot of um, these conversations we have in Kink all the time about aftercare <laughs> mm-hmm. and about how Yeah Yes, you know, yes. yes. Your, your book partners. is
0: totally aftercare.
2: And I have I have been in that community for so long and in burlesque even um, I was an instructor for ten years for burlesque, and you're dealing with people who are very this is sensitive stuff you're getting you know shenaked naked in front of strangers mm-hmm. you know um that can reveal a lot of vulnerabilities about ourselves so all of this kind of like fine-tuned my skills when it came to caring for people's emotions while educating them or caring for them right mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and i think that that's where a lot of that came from i can tell you definitively 15 16 years ago i didn't have that ability so I wow. think it's important to understand that I came from a from a way of a, like a farm kid who I believed very strongly in common sense. I believed very strongly in oh you messed up, well you made this bed, now you gotta, you know, lay in it kind of mentality. But now as I've older I've softened that approach a lot. And it has more to do with you made that bed, well let me make sure that, you know, it's comfortable for both of us. You know, oh. rather than just, just deal with it. You know what I mean?
3: Yeah, Mm. I mean, I feel like one of the other things that's so unique about the book um, is also that it's pitched towards renters, and I mean, I was just like, as I was reading it, also grateful for, you know, the emotional reset pieces because I kept having flashbacks to the absolute worst New York City apartments I lived in in my 20s where truly ceilings were falling in, you know, et cetera, et cetera. (laughs) People could imagine. Um, And and, but I, but you know I think so much, especially in American culture, revolves around fantasies of home ownership. That like the, you know, yeah. not to be a downer, but the macroeconomic data isn't there, honey, for, for, for <laughs> especially for younger generations and for queer trans people. And so, could you yeah. tell us a little bit about like what made you want to kind of pitch this to renters in particular, and sort of what what distinguishes that from? kind of traditional home ownership, uh, home repair kind of approach.
2: Another thing that makes me unique in this space that I inhabit online is that I'm also a renter. And I've been a renter for my entire adult life, right? Mm -hmm. Came down here in Tropical Madison, Wisconsin from a small northeastern Wisconsin town. And I've been a renter since that moment I got here. And I think I too... I'm not in the financial position right now that I want to be in order to have a home. And we are working on that process right now for me to get my own home. That would be amazing. But uh, for the last 15, 16 years, I've been a renter. So I've written what I know. And what I know yeah. is how to take care of my own home and also all the other um, apartments I've taken care of as a professional maintenance technician you know, at property management companies. So to me, it was a natural distinction. Like, why would I talk about a house? I don't have a house, silly, you know? (laughs) Um, And it was really when publishers came to me and they were like, you would be so great in this written format. Would you want to do it? And I said, yeah, that'd be great. What would you want to write about? Like, what kind of homeowner book do you want to write? Mm. And that would instantly stop the conversation and be like, "I, I don't. I don't know what you mean. I mean, (laughs) why would I write the book like that? Um, Those problems can be found in my book, right? So the thing I always tell people, this is like an intersectional approach to um, home repair, right? If I can help a renter, I can help homeowners as well. But if I help a own homeowner, I'm not innately helping the renters, right? Mm, yeah. there are different problems that homeowners are going to face. Some are financial. They're making a lot more financial large calls from water heaters and full-on replacements of plumbing and et cetera. But with renters, there's foundational things in there, right, that like we can mess with in our homes that typically don't violate any lease. So why don't we learn those things, Other than um, focusing on homeowners that already have a bazillion books written from them every year, you know?
0: Yeah, and I mean, I think it's not lost on anybody, like certainly you, that if you're trans or queer, uh, inviting a repair person into your home or, you know, getting on your landlord's ass about something might be an even less attractive prospect than it would be for a cis or straight person.
2: Oh, yeah. I actually think I spoke about this in the first iteration of the book when I was sending it to publishers and trying to convince them that this was a good idea. One of the things I wrote very extensively about was how I know what it's like. To hide every flag in my apartment. I know what mm-hmm, it's like mm-hmm. to hide a dress in the back of my uh, closet. I know what it's like to make sure that my boyfriend or etc. Is not in the space when I'm in the when space. someone you know? comes like, we got to make it look like there's two bedrooms. <laughs> I know yeah. what that's like. Yep. To go through something absurd like that. When you're just asking for help. And it really frames the whole approach to the book, the education, and everything. Even the cover of the book is essentially queer. And even trying to communicate that to publishers, being like, oh, I want the book to look like this. And they're like, we think that would be away from a dem- our demographic we're looking for. And my response would always be, you're looking for homeowners. I'm looking for queer renters. Right. <laughs> right. And it's working. Yeah.
0: Yeah, and it made you a New York Times bestseller, so right. Wild. <laughs>
2: wild. I can't tell you the happy dance, but also the spiteful. Ha 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 ha. time that uh, we learned it, and we're, we're currently in a fifty-two city book tour. Yes. Um, we're also primarily funding ourselves because you know this is a wild thing to to do as a fifty-two city book tour, but we know if we went into small communities that had a high percentage of renters, like 65% of people who live in the spaces we're going to are renters. So it just made sense to lean into that and go where they are. And to be primarily at independent bookstores that also, by the way, rent. So it just makes more sense to go that route than, than others.
1: Yeah, Christina, I'm so glad you brought that up because it's. Just, I, I feel like this, this book will feel very empowering to a lot of people to have in their home so that you maybe don't have to call those people in who make you so uncomfortable. I, I'm in a throuple and a gay throuple. And so that is, we've definitely dealt with that choice of like, are we all three going to be here? How are we going to, you know, what is this like person going to, how are they going to respond to mm-hmm. that, right? So anyway, it's very nice to have this resource there. Mercury, uh, you know, obviously you're well aware that, we are all living under this uh, horrible climate of political attack against LGBTQ people in the country. I wondered if you could just offer a few thoughts on what the idea of safe and sound and and home uh, means to you in that context, in this moment that we're living in.
2: When we were trying to think of a title of the book, they asked me what I wanted it to be. And we went back and forth with a lot of names. And then one um, randomly I said, boy, I just want the book to make people feel safe and sound, you know? Mm -hmm. And my editor was like, wow, do you think that should be the title of the book? And I said, you know, it it does feel like that's what every queer person's dream is, isn't it? Right. Um, Right. we, We grew up, I think, a lot of queer people in our country, especially people who are my age, 30 years and plus, we remember a time when just a mere um, hint of us maybe being gay or questioning ourselves could be even more scary than what it maybe be for us right now, right? Um, It felt like I could lose everything when I was 17 years old when I came out as a queer kid, Mm -hmm. you know? I mean, I did. I was exiled from my home, and my dad kicked me out of the house, and I lived on my own for a year and a half before I went to college. I remember what it's like to not feel safe and sound. I was living out of a car. Um, I was living with friends. I was living with with teachers. I didn't have anywhere to go. So all I wanted was that white picket fence that every single person is told when they're wee little kid is possible. Mm -hmm. And I just wanted to feel safe and sound. So so to me, feeling safe and sound in a time that we live in is making sure that our space feels like our space. Maybe. We live in a space that isn't quite safe, but it's all we got right now and there's nothing wrong with that and we're doing the best we can and hopefully tomorrow will bring a little bit bit of a brighter day. Oh, Mercury, thank you.
1: That's such a lovely note to end on. Um, Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us. You mentioned uh, this busy book tour. Um, Do you just want to share quickly where folks can learn about that and and follow you? Um, What's the best place to connect?
2: Well, they can always learn more about me by going to my website, MercuryStardust.com. We have a whole list of all the cities that are still um, up to grabs. We right. have 37 more to go. Wow, that's wild. <laughs> <laughs> um, and um, you can follow me on Instagram, the YouTubes, and the good old-fashioned Tiki Talk.
1: Right. So, listeners, again, the book is called Safe and Sound. It's by Mercury Stardust. It is a wonderful and very useful book book. Uh, I think it would make a great gift for anyone uh, this coming holiday season, also for yourself. Uh, It's just so fabulous and full of uh, friendly advice. Um, Mercury, thanks again. Uh, You're you're doing really great work out there. We appreciate
2: it. Thank you. I appreciate you.
3: Well, that's almost everything for this month, but before we go, we've got your monthly updates to the glorious gay agenda. Uh, Brian, do you want to kick us off?
1: Sure. Um, So I have a piece to recommend uh, from Slate.com, the -hmm. internet magazine. Uh, It is by Nico Lang, and the title or the headline is What Happens When You're Almost Out of Testosterone and You Live in Florida? SB 254 targets primarily trans kids, but it's having disastrous effects on adults too. As our listeners probably know, SB 254 is one of many of these bills in Florida that was meant to restrict uh, access to health care. For trans people, this was specifically sort of pitched as being about puberty blockers and hormones for minors. And it's actually currently sort of in limbo, but it's already still shaping healthcare access for everyone. And what Nico explores in this piece is that because of the way that it restricts who can offer hormone prescriptions to a doctor instead of your like, nurse practitioners and other people who would normally do that, it's making it very difficult for trans adults also mm-hmm. to like, access prescriptions that they already had, You know, treatment that they have been in for years. Nico follows a trans man in this story who is rationing his last doses of testosterone and considering looking to the black market. So people understand like this has serious effects on people's health. This guy shares in the in the story that he's been having horrible headaches, and his muscle tone has decreased from like a twenty five to thirty year old guy to a fifty year old guy, and he's having trouble you know playing with his son. So these are real effects on people. And so this story is just a, I think a, a really harrowing but also useful and important lens on how how the legislation that we've been covering and talking about for months now is actually, uh, hurting, uh, people. Uh, and so it's, again, it's called what happens when you're almost out of testosterone and you live in Florida and it's on slate.
0: I have a, a very enthusiastic addition to the gay agenda. (laughs) It's a show called deadlock. Have you guys seen this? Mm -mm. No. I love it. I love that. I get to introduce you to it. It's on Amazon prime. It is an Australian crime comedy set in Tasmania. Uh, I almost want to call it a drama because the cinematography is so dark and the humor is so dark, but there is nothing serious about it. It's about this tiny town called Deadlock where nothing ever happens until um, all of these uh, cis men start showing up dead um, with their tongues cut off. And I actually haven't finished the season yet, so I still don't know who's doing it. But um, there are these two, like, polar opposite women detectives who have to team up to solve the case. Both of those actors are queer in real life. Um, One is, like, you know, the no-nonsense, buttoned-up, kind of earnest lesbian cop. And then there's Madeline Sammy, who's a New Zealand actor who I would say is, like, maybe one of the best physical comedians of our time. They play this, like heterosexual but like very butch and kind of bro and disgusting um detective who's like a total hot mess and a potty mouth and like always messing things up <laughs> i'm not joking when i say i'm laughing basically non-stop through every episode which is not no. normal for me i did have to put subtitles on because of the australian accents <laughs> and also yep. the slang um and now i'm laughing even more but it's just like this small town with all these silly little characters who are like each fully sketched out as these incredible little types, almost like the way Shits Creek does. But this um, show is like way darker and funnier and not at all sappy, not at all feel good. Um, and also this small town just happens to have a, an extremely large population of lesbians. It's just so good. I can't recommend it enough. Again, it's called Deadlock streaming on Amazon. Jules, what about you?
3: Well, now that I have an Australian accent stuck... Oh
0: my my god! What?
6: (laughs) What?
3: That was so good! We we could do an accent episode uh, in future mods (laughs) if (laughs) listeners request. (laughs) <laughs> well, I, I, I have an American suggestion, um, but um, Isil McElroy, who's a really whip-smart, charming, wonderful um, trans non-binary novelist, their second book is coming out on September 26th. Uh, it's called People Collide, and it sounds like an incredible, incredible novel. The premise is that it follows this guy named Eli who is married to this woman named Elizabeth uh, in Bulgaria, of all places. Mm -hmm. And he, you know, wakes up one morning realizing that him and his wife have swapped bodies. Um, And so... He is still Eli, but he's trapped in the body of Elizabeth. But, you know, Elizabeth, who is trapped in his body, has gone missing. And so he has to go on this kind of adventure um, across much of Europe to figure out what happened to uh, his wife slash his body. Uh, and you can imagine that some hijinks are going to ensue. Um, but, you know, I'm just, like, I'm a huge fan of ISIL's work. I think they're, they're really one of those kind of, like, yeah, trans writers of this moment to keep an eye on. So I haven't had the chance to read it yet, but can't wait um, for when it comes out. So hi- highly recommend um, People Collide, or as they would say in Tasmania, P- Pipal Colloid.
0: What uh, is this? Uh, just like wow! Everyone in like former British colonies can just do all the other accents. <laughs> oh, no, and I'm sure.
3: Okay, if there are any listeners who are Australian, please leave a voice memo like reading me read to <laughs> felt. I'm sure I'm doing <laughs> that.
0: That's so good. Um, I'm not the only accent I can do. Every time I try to do a British accent, even I can only do like a chimney sweep one. I can't. <laughs> I don't have a very wide range. of accents. Christina,
3: the the industrial orphan. You're gonna
0: offend June. Don't I know. No, I am not gonna it's We're probably it's really something getting
3: into risky territory at the end of this episode mm. well maybe before I start saying any more accents this is a great place for us to wrap up for the yeah. butt um, but before we go as always please do send us feedback uh, you know particularly on my voices but also topic ideas uh, and your 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 other comments to Podcast at slate.com you can always reach out to us on facebook or x X. at slate out word and you know little reminder if you want to join slate plus you'll get uh, ad free podcasts some extra segments on shows like the waves and working and you'll never hit a paywall on the slate site so if you're interested in that you can always go to slate.com slash outward plus June Thomas is our producer and the gold medalist of our Gay Olympics. Mm. If you like Outward, please do subscribe in your podcast app. Tell your friends about it. Rate and review the show so other people can find it. Christina, Brian, bye. <laughs>
5: oh bye, Jules. Bye. We
1: run? Wait, oh my God. I'm running away. Stay gay, everybody.